0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for The Philanthropy Journal. This week, we're messing it up a little. In the studio with me today is our multimedia producer, David Mueller. So David, we've been talking about this project for three years. And when you came on board, we had already had the concept kind of well formulated. We just were stuck in this pattern that we couldn't quite kick ourselves out. And you kind of came swooping in and said, I can fix this. And I said, go for it, let me know how I can support you, and you've made it happen. So thank you oh. for making the podcast happen. It
1: was a great experience for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the, doing the work was thanks enough, for sure. I felt more like I may have tumbled in than swooped in, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just it was one of those moments in you know your work life where you come upon a problem that you happen to have some skills that... That apply to. It was pretty easy for me to kind of get started, and and really, I got a lot of satisfaction out of the sort of wayfinding process. I do have a background in audio. I've never really, I've done a little bit of podcast work, but had never really, certainly not at this level. So sort of just translating what I had learned in, really, from music production um, into a podcast framework and seeing what was the same and what was different, and What I knew and what I didn't was a great sort of discovery process for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole project itself really has been an experiment, you know. Um, We had sort of the concept mapped out, but we didn't really know how it was going to work. And I think it wasn't really until we set, we really just had to break that seal, right? We really just had to start recording and jump right in. Like three years of stalling and then, you know, kind of going back to what, uh, you know, had been mentioned in a previous podcast episode like at some point you have to stop thinking and start doing for sure and i think that that has really um helped this project succeed
1: it also speaks to the idea that i think the concept was really strong you guys had worked on it and kind of punched it up and figured out what you wanted and also why you wanted it Mm -hmm. um what value this would bring to your audiences. And so once you have a good concept, it's the technical pieces will fall into place. If you're willing to be flexible and willing to sort of think on your feet um, and your concept is actually is sound, I think that the technical stuff falls into place. And in this case, it just happened to be me coming into the picture and having some applicable skills. And um, it actually moved pretty fast once we got going. I mean, we did 22 episodes in, since August. Well, there was a couple, we did a couple sort of pre-roll proof of concept things, mm-hmm. but really the bulk of it, you know, over 20 episodes were, was had been done since August, just every week. Yeah. And we really were able to kind of sort of set a framework and then just give it enough sway so that it could kind of bend depending on who was involved, and um, but still retain the core of the concept. There are moments from every episode that I, I want to draw a circle around and you know, to anybody who's interested and says, what's this project about? I could point to a moment in every episode that really just sort of concentrates that, the value of it. But I narrowed it down to three. The first one uh, is from a staff favorite, A Path from Addiction, uh, about 3rd Street in Greenville. Two guys uh, talking about a nonprofit they run uh, that sort of provides employment services for people in recovery. And um, it's very much a non-profit mission area, but uh, both Donald and Mike, I feel like, are speaking from a very genuine place, but also as people who maybe aren't called upon to speak in that capacity, at least within the sort of formalized non-profit sector avenue.
0: Donald and Michael really take that ownership in being addicts and... You know, it's not this story that we tell ourselves that addicts are terrible people or that addicts, you know, came from a poor upbringing or any of that. Like, they're really shining light on, you know, we're totally capable people of having wonderful lives and where we came from, you know, good families and that's not the issue. It's And it, so it helps, I think, it helps the listener challenge their own thinking around, in that episode very specifically, around, you know, addiction and what addicts quote-unquote, look like.
1: Well, that's the, actually, excerpt I pulled was about how people are finally beginning to understand addiction as a disease as that does not discriminate. And Donald does a really good job of just stating that very frankly. It took
2: drug addiction reaching the upper middle class for it to become a big issue. And uh, slowly, the stigma... Yeah is starting to be removed uh, they call it substance use disorder now instead <laughs> they don't <laughs> call it junkies and addicts anymore um, and it's a shame that it took that but fortunately fortunately that's allowing the stigma to be removed yeah it's you know? uh, it started to affect every generation um,
3: every different type of background uh, from high class families down to your the lowest a level, lowest level families
2: as far as economical status goes. Uh, and people are becoming more aware of the impact it's having on society. Well, and, and I'm going to harp on this, I guess, but it's sad that that's what it took to get the resources. I use this example a lot as I came through the crack cocaine era. Yeah. And crack cocaine was a ghetto drug. I did too. And the government never jumped in. They never jumped in and says, let's go save the crack addicts. But when, you know, Johnny Smith over here, and whose dad's the CEO of yeah. this corporation, started overdoses
3: from opiates and heroin. we got to do something. Yeah.
2: we got to do something. Like I say, we'll let bygones be bygones. It's just, you know, I, it, I hate this is what it took, but at least we are seeing those resources in the community at a, at a community level and a national level as well.
4: That Now that the... Problem
3: is coming more to the light. I feel like places like Third Street are going to be instrumental
2: in doing something to help people get their lives back together and get back on track. Well, it's just like you and I talked about this morning. Though, still there's an underlying problem. All we hear is prevention, prevention, prevention. Well, if all we done was prevent cancer, what about all the people who already have cancer? Are we just going to write them off? Yeah. And not treat them. It's the very same thing with drug addiction. You hear prevention and prevention, and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Prevention's great, but what about the ones who are already addicted, and it's too late for prevention? We've got to provide treatment for them somehow, and then that goes back to talking about you know our goal of having a long-term treatment program uh, attached to Third Street Facility Services. Well, it's like the analogy I made to you about the band-aid. You know, yeah. The. The substance
3: abuse—that's just the cover-up of the wound. Um, if we can get to what the underlying problems are that cause people to seek
2: out those things, then we stand a better chance of doing something to curb that epidemic and change it. Well, it was my experience that true. I really and I firmly believe that there is always an underlying issue. To the, the underlying issue was the reason I ever felt it necessary to pick up a drug. Or yeah. drink in the first place. I felt, wow, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. Because I knew better. Uh, so there's always an underlying issue. But it takes time to get into that. Yeah. First you've got to do is you've got to remove them from the environment. You've got to get get that obsession. Because with me, my alcoholism and my drug addiction came along with an obsession to use. Uh, that it was, it was almost like it was talking to me. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I wish I could do that. And so, you know, get that, and then you can start working on the man. Once you remove some of those things, you can start working on the man. Because there is a, someone told me when I was a young kid, uh, I think I was about 14 years old. My mom told me one day, she says, Son, the reason people drink is because they're not happy with the person they are when they're sober. And I thought, there's got to be, that can't be so true. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of truth in that. Well, guess what? (laughs) I found out that was the exact reason that I was drinking. I wasn't comfortable with who I was when I was sober. I still don't know that that's the case for everybody who has a glass of wine with dinner but for me you know it was definitely a social lubricant I needed that to be able I don't know if you've ever watched the Big Bang Theory but Rajesh Kuthapali on the Big Bang Theory couldn't talk to girls unless he had been drinking he couldn't say a word (laughs) (laughs) so that was almost like me Uh, but so that was an underlying issue there: that that inferiority and that low self-esteem and things like that
1: The next excerpt I pulled was really interesting to me coming because I was just coming out of grad school and had really unexpectedly developed a taste for um, academic writing, Uh, had some great experiences with it at conferences and uh, writing a couple of journal articles. So we had uh, Jason and Jessica from here at NC State who had a very successful article this year, uh, Jason Coupe and Jessica Bartlett, Called.
0: Overhead ratio is not a measure of efficiency.
1: That's right. So, in this section, uh, Jason kind of digs into the difference between efficiency and effectiveness in uh, nonprofits and sort of contrasting that with how it's thought about in the for profit sector. And coming from a place of academic research, makes some pretty forthright observations that aren't particularly wonky in and of themselves that Mm -hmm. I think anybody could, especially anybody in the nonprofit sector, could appreciate.
4: The short of it is I think that there are fundamental misunderstandings about what efficiency means and what effectiveness means. Effectiveness is whatever you define as effectiveness. Efficiency means maximizing the output that you get with inputs. The private, quote, proprietary sector only cares about efficiency insofar as it cares about profit. Businesses do really inefficient things all the time in terms of making what they make because it's more profitable to be less efficient, right? If it, if I'm, I have a company and I'm trying to build something that's high-end, I'm going to spend more than it would normally take to build something and convince you through marketing or whatever that it's high-end and then sell it at a higher price, right? It doesn't mean that it's, it's efficient, right? Other, some firms value efficiency more than others, um, If I'm competing, for instance, on cost or I'm in a space where uh, I'm making something, I produce things and I need to make it faster, then I care. But, you know, if I'm a marketing firm, I don't care. Right. It's less about that and more about I'll dump a ton of input to make one magazine. But if that magazine makes me more profitable, I, I think that matters because the A, the notion that like the proprietary sector is more efficient or cares, is I think we need to unpack that a little bit. Um, efficiency is maximizing outputs for inputs. And I think that'll help inform what nonprofits think too. So when they go, well, we're trying to be too much like the proprietary sector, it's like, no, you ain't. You are if you're going, is this program profitable or not? And if it's profitable, then we keep it. And if it's not, then we cut it. That's the logic sort of behind like the proprietary logic. Being efficient just means freeing up resources. It's what you do with those resources or what you plan what those resources mean for you strategically that sort of makes you more like a certain sector right so if if your goal is maximizing shareholder value then you're like a you're like a you're like a proprietary sector other than that being efficient just means freeing stuff up right it 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 means freeing it up in a way that allows you to do uh, more of what you do like what differentiates sectors for me is goal how you construct your goals what is the mission of it um so being efficient is always good like i don't being efficient also means being effective right like to me um yeah effectiveness that's the thing you're measuring right that's your outcome or output that's sort of what you're you want being effective means making more meals right so you can that's a core part of those things can be weaved together like I, I struggle with the dichotomy between like efficient or effective so those kind of conversations i've been having too yeah
5: Um, well it's hilarious because so you know as i'm like jotting down like notes on the side here i just put research question does efficiency lead to effectiveness Mm -hmm. and so i think that's you know think about kind of the future research agenda that's certainly it builds off the research that you know that we've been doing and i mean that's an easy enough with data that we have right we can look at that but again we have to keep in mind that we can look at it in one setting, but we got to continue. It goes back to the earlier conversation. We got to continue to replicate this yeah. in other nonprofit settings or subsectors, which continues to build the research yeah. agenda, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, never no ending. ending.
1: And then the final. Uh, excerpt that I want to share is from my personal favorite episode. It's called This Rural Work with Sean Maynard and Randolph Keaton. Sean is the mayor of Bolton, Mm North Carolina, and Randolph is with Men and Women United for Youth and Families. And they're talking about Uh, the struggles that rural communities have experienced over the past couple of decades. And Randolph is asking, you know, are we going backwards? And it's sort of a tough moment for both these guys to answer that question, looking at their own, you know, upbringing in these same areas and thinking about their kids. And as a new father, some of the stuff they were saying really resonated with me. And it also kind of segues into a great discussion about this idea of permission. There are resources out there that might allow somebody like Sean or Randolph to step back for a second and reset because it's a very valuable resource to have um, to not get burnout, to be able to see things with fresh eyes. And they're both wondering if they could afford to take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, I think what also is interesting about that episode was actually being in the room and watching that moment happen. Because as it plays out, you know, Randolph's talking about this opportunity he has to take a sabbatical. And he's saying, you know, I just, I can't do it because I don't, believe that I'll be able to step away from the work and I don't have anybody who can take over everything that I do. And Sean, who's, um, I think he's a reverend as well, as a mayor and Very much so. and yeah. involved in youth development as well, um, he shares a story. You know, he kind of makes this point through storytelling, which in and of itself is interesting, that, that oftentimes we are the ones standing in the way of ourselves. And to sit in that room and watch the transformation in Randolph's face as he was kind of processing what he was hearing Sean say was really, really cool because then Randolph's like, wow, you know, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the one who hasn't been investing in this pipeline to be able to make sure that, you know, I can step away if the event you know if if that opportunity presents itself and i think that that was really one of those magic moments that we hope to capture
1: definitely
0: um you know and and we need catharsis in in the sector we w- we work really hard and um we don't get a break a lot of times and a lot of us take this work home with us and to one of the things that we joke that we provide here with the philanthropy journal and and again through this podcast project is this, we call it the luxury service of reflection, right? We're giving a space for people to talk about their work and to share and to have that catharsis um, that I think is really um, important to, to what it is, to everything that we do.
1: I agree. And as somebody who is relatively, if not completely new to the nonprofit sector, before I started working with you, you and Kristen both explained that vision to me going into this, and I saw it play out in real time over the production of this podcast. And it really just sort of was an object lesson in in that idea
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and something I'll take forward with me for sure. We had so much more as I look back at it now,
3: back in the 70s and 80s in these small rural towns than we have now. And we had, you know, we, I mean, just, just things that we had as kids that we valued, you know, but now that we don't have them. So are we taking a step backwards in some cases?
5: Yes, I would say so. <laughs> I would
3: definitely say so. That's a hard thing to, that's a, to me, that's a hard thing to, to think about. Because yes. I, I got, I'll have seven grandchildren soon. Have five now. Wow. And two on the way. So for me to think now as a, 57-year-old man, grandfather, father, that the, the life that I lived back in the 70s and 80s, the best times ever, that we're going backwards instead of forward? Yeah. And what does that look like? And who's going to come to our rescue, Sean?
5: I have no idea. My, my concern is um, the Lord has such a sense of humor. I have a six-month-old. And I'm 51, and uh, I have a seven-year-old, and so I really feel like, okay, He was called oh, to this yeah. work. I'm called to this work, but now I'm called to Wake County, or I'm called to, to some of those major cities, yeah. so I can make sure that my children get uh, uh, um, get an opportunity to have a better education, and you know, I'm looking at you know when I go to Raleigh and the, the resources that are available to youth there. Whether they take advantage of it or not, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at my child who um uh, is in is in now in second grade at um at my, at the same elementary school that i was that I was in and um I'm worried if she's gonna be able to compete when she when she when she goes to one of those major universities with kids who Have been coming home with computers probably since they were in the first grade. So I mean, it's it's just so much. It is so much. But going, I I I just want to be intentional this year about moving forward. I want to be very intentional. I want to be strategic. I want to make sure that um, you know I'm doing what I'm assigned to do. That's right. That's all. In 2019, I want to make sure I don't want to miss any golden opportunities because I'm frustrated, aggravated, and all that goes along with that or dealing with, um, you know, community, you know. Operating on burnout, that's something we need to talk about. Yes, sir. Because burnout actually exists, especially when you're you're pulling and you're pulling and you're pulling and trying to help. A lot of times, people sometimes that, Seem like they don't
3: want to go. You just can't fix people. You know what I mean. Mm. There's relationships build relationship building that we have to do, and I think a lot of our work is people trusting us to do what we say we're going to do, yeah. and not and be and be like a, a be professional about it. You know, confidentiality. We ain't going to go out and
1: talk that's about right. what
3: people got going on. So that's the kind of thing that we right. have to do as uh, as leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of hard with the people that who aren't trained and, and 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 aren't don't understand that they shouldn't say something you know out of order, and that it, and we have volunteers. So a lot of our volunteers aren't we aren't they aren't getting paid, so we get what we get. So those those challenges, I I just worry if what would happen if if something happened to me that I had to leave men and women, I would definitely feel. Uh, I would be afraid. Um, I don't think we really have anybody in the pipeline to, that will just take right off where we're from, where we're at, and and and, and move right on like you weren't there.
5: Um, if we did, that would help them. Yeah, because because uh, 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 is it Z Smith
3: Reynolds? They have this sabbatical. I've been told several times about the sabbatical. They say, well, "Okay, you got to leave, and you can't. You, you gotta leave and rest and rejuvenate." And, um, and not even be at work at all. Don't take phone calls or anything. And when that was offered to me, I was like, no way I could do that. Yeah. Who am I going to leave in charge? There's a lot of stress behind this work. And uh, I wouldn't want to set my staff up for that. Yeah. You know, I, I'd probably maybe talk to my board chair about it, but there's no way I could go a year and rest. Because I wouldn't rest. I don't know your thoughts on that, Sean, but I couldn't rest.
5: Well, that's a thought. It's a good thought. <laughs> it's a good thought. But you know, you I, need I, to I, rest. I, I, but, yeah, but I'm like you. But you know, um, okay. So I had this young lady. Um, what was this subject? I can't think of it right now. Um, but it was basically dealing with with being burnout. Yeah. Operating in, um in in um burnout in, mode. in, in burnout mode, mm-hmm. and what she talked about. Um, I'm about to get it, but what she talked about when she came to do uh, a public speaking for us, she came and she talked about how sometimes you can be the problem. And she got everybody else, and so as long as she was getting them, I was fine. I was like, yeah, tell them, let them know. I wanted you to. I mean, you're batting a thousand. Right. You know, I'm 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 just willing. And then she turns around and flips it and she says, sometime you can be the problem. You're there, you're doing this work, you know, and you're hindering the next person from stepping up and doing. And she looked at it at that approach. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, hmm, maybe so. And so sometimes we have to know when to let go. Mm -hmm. We have to let, have to know when to release and let go and as if Z. Smith Reynolds is, is saying that, I would right. love to hear that. Right. If, they, if, if, if that's what they're saying, I would love to know more about that. Letting go and allowing myself time to rejuvenate right. so I can get back in the race and get back in there. Or there's things that can fall through the crack because we're frustrated, right. Right. we're tired, we're on burnout, family tired, everybody. It's time because our mindset Mm -hmm. is to we gotta do this. We gotta, we gotta do that. We gotta do that. My wife loves it when I just take time and me and her go on a sabbatical and and I don't answer the phone. She loves that. Actually, she loves me. But (laughs) she loves that when we do that, but you know, most of the time it's meetings on Saturday morning. It's something every day, almost. And if it's not for dislocated and displaced workers, mm-hmm. then it's for ministry, wow. um, youth, it's something. It something all the time, yeah. and me and you have to be there. So
0: what was your most favorite moment
1: of the whole project? you know, I'm going to take a step back from the exact moment because I really don't know what it is, but just sort of my favorite thing about it has been seeing that, you know, I felt like this was a solid concept and I was excited about it. And we got a lot of response, you know, and people wanting to participate, um, great feedback from the people who did participate and just seeing it sort of come alive from the conceptual stage into the actualization was really rewarding. And, um, I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. You know, I, I really look forward to looking one, <laughs> listening to one of these episodes I didn't have to edit. <laughs> That'll be exciting. <laughs> I mean, I should say thank you very much for everything. Mm-hmm. This has been, like I said, an incredible experience. Um, if you are a student in NCSU, I cannot encourage you enough to follow up on any opportunity you see coming down the pipe from the journal I switched over to the journal from another student job almost on a whim in my last year of grad school, and it has changed my whole experience and given me so much more to go forward with, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: Wow. Thank you. <laughs> I am really grateful for everything that you've brought to this team. It's going to be a huge loss for us, but we're really excited for you as you move on to this next adventure, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the nonprofit experience. If you would like to support experiential education opportunities for students like David, donate to the project at go.ncsu.edu forward slash give to PJ. Help us spread the word about TNE by rating us on iTunes and sharing us with a friend. TNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear, our graduate editor is Kristen Goliath, our graduate assistant editor is Preston Whitworth, and our multimedia producer is David Mueller. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience, and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play.